The title of my message is that then, what if, has God's word failed? Uh, what if God's word could fail? Have you ever thought about that? What difference would that make in your life? What, what, if, um, what if everything that you had believed about God's word, we just read from Isaiah 55, right? That God's word is sent out and it never is is never void. It, it, it always accomplishes a task for which it was sent. Uh, God's Word is infallible. Well, what if it weren't? You know, we live in a world where we have all experienced putting our trust in something or someone and having that trust broken or violated. You, you maybe have uh, been betrayed by a friend, maybe a spouse. Uh, you um, trusted in your boss to do certain things that he promised to do and he and he violated that trust, or family, uh, or friends, I mean, have, have betrayed you in some way. Um, we, that's, that's life in this world. We, we put our trust in things, politicians, and, uh, and we find that uh, they didn't mean a word they said, or just due to human weakness, they, they have violated that trust in a, in a deeply painful way. But, but in all of that, you see, in all the context of our life, um, in all the, the loss of confidence in institutions that we're experiencing like in the last five years, the Christians have always had this, con- this comfort that God doesn't change and that God is a rock and that God's word is true and we can rely upon that no matter what else happens. Though the mountains fall into the depths of the sea, right? we can have confidence. We will not be afraid because God is God and he's a rock and he doesn't change. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's what we hold to. That's our confidence. But what if it wasn't true? What if someone could produce proof that the Bible actually is just a human book, like any other human book, and that God is fallible? That he means well, but, but the fact is that... Um, He's not able to accomplish everything that he purposes. You see, if someone could prove that to you, it would completely shatter the foundations of your faith. That would would mean that trusting in God is a nice religious idea, but it has no practical value. In fact, it is folly. It means that you actually don't have any immutable basis for hope in your life. When you're in the middle of some tragedy or travesty or trial, and you're in the middle of it, you got nothing to hold on to. You you can't tell yourself, well, God has intended this, and God is going to be with me through this, and this is going to be for my good, as it says in Romans 8, verse 28. Well, you can hope those things. You can wish those things, but you don't have any confidence. Because, because God is actually fallible. You see, it, w- it would mean functionally that you really are truly on your own, completely on your own in this world. Well, the, I raise that issue because that's the issue that Paul is addressing here in Romans chapter 9. As I said, we're starting a new, question, a new section in the, in the uh, letter, and, and the issue that Paul is asking, is addressing in this section is, what, is, what if God's word has failed? Is it possible that God's word could fail? And the reason he's raising that is because in Paul's day, it's become just devastatingly evident that the Jews, by and large, have completely rejected their Messiah. Uh, the church was advancing in the Gentile world. Churches are being planted. 
But the Jews are not only rejecting the gospel, but they are fiercely persecuting the church. They're really the front line of persecution. And that's a deeply painful experience for the Apostle Paul. He talks about it in verses 1 through 5. These are his, his brothers, his kinsmen. Remember, when, when Paul would go to a new town, you can read the book of Acts. When you find Paul going into a new town, what does he do? The, what's the first, where's the first place he goes? He goes to the synagogue. Why? Well, because, because these are the people of God of the Old Testament. These are, these are people who should be the most eager to hear the good news of the Messiah. And they're his people. But every town he went, he goes to the synagogue, and his, the, the response is rejection, hatred, persecution. And it's a devastating experience, as you can imagine, for the apostle. But it's not just a painful personal experience. Much worse, the nearly universal rejection of Jesus by the Jews raises a huge question concerning God. God's faithfulness. You see, because the promises in the Old Testament that God made are promises made to Israel. They are, they are His covenant people, and God promised that He would send them a Savior. He would send them someone who would turn their hearts, someone who would forgive their sin and, and usher them into the kingdom of God. But when the Messiah actually came, well, the hearts of the Jews were not being turned. And their sins, therefore, were not being forgiven. They were not coming to faith and, re and embracing the Messiah. They crucified him. And then they continued to hate him. They're not entering the kingdom of God. They're fiercely opposed to it. And so you, the, the question has to be faced, has, has God's word failed? Has God been unable to rescue his people? It's the same question you had back in, the, in, in Exodus when God leads the people out, and then you get the devastating rebellion at Mount Sinai, and God says to Moses, stand aside, I'm going to wipe them out, and, and what's Moses' response? You can't do that, because the nations will say, you failed. You weren't able to carry through what you had purposed. Well, we find a similar dilemma here. Has God failed? Has he, has he been unable to overcome the unbelief of the Jews? And see, that's not a question or a problem just for Jews. It's a problem for Gentiles because if God is, was not able at the end of the day to overcome the unbelief of the Jews, then what confidence do you have? He'll be over, able to overcome your unbelief. Because, I mean, truth be told, we have the same rebellious hearts the Jews had. So what hope truly do you have if God is not able to accomplish what he purposed for them, what makes you think he's able to accomplish what he purposed for you? Now, there's a branch of, of false teaching uh, in the church, goes way back to Pelagius and Arminius, that tries to solve this problem by saying that um, God has created man with a free will and God has bound himself so as not to violate that will. So, yes, God's original intention, his desire, was for the Jews to be saved, but they exercised their free will. They rejected Jesus. God was not going to trample their free will, and there you have it. So God goes to plan B, and now he, he starts working with the Gentiles instead, right? That's, that's their answer. Well, 
as we go through Paul's uh, words here in Romans 9, 10, 11, we're going to find that Paul does not solve the issue by appealing to man's free will. Uh, he does exactly the opposite. He solves the issue by appealing to God's sovereign choice. And that's really good news for us. You see, it's precisely because your salvation is grounded in something immutable, like the sovereign will of God, that you can have immutable hope. Our only hope, friends, in salvation is if it is a free gift of God's grace accomplished by His sovereign choice and power. And that's exactly what Paul proves here. But he begins verses 1 through 5 by talking about his anguish. I just have two points this morning. Paul's anguish, Paul's argument. Verses 1 through 5, his anguish. Verse 6 through 13, his argument. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul is, begins this conversation by just telling us about how brokenhearted he is by the unbelief of the Jews. He goes so far to say that, that if it were possible, he would, he would choose to be cut off from Christ, condemned, in order that they might be saved. Now, those of you who have unsaved family members can identify with this. Some of you have parents or siblings or children who are not walking with Christ, who are on the road to hell. And you get it. You understand the heartache of seeing those you dearly love reject Christ and, and just seem to be on their way to eternal perdition. It's, it is heartrending. It's heartbreaking. And I think it's important for us as we, as we start this, this chapter and this discussion about divine election to remember that this isn't just an interesting theological point for the Apostle. The discussion of election flows from the heartache of seeing loved ones perish in unbelief. There's, there's, there's intense anguish drama here. So Paul did not write, write chapter 9 in order to prove that Arminians are wrong and Calvinists are right. It's not where he wrote it. He wrote it with great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. And he wrote it to prove that God is still faithful and sovereign and good even when loved ones are refusing to believe and to be saved. We just, we just need to sense these are, these are matters, weighty matters of eternal significance. And we cheapen it when we use this text simply to win theological arguments. It's not meant for that. It's meant to crush human pride. It's meant to exalt God's sovereignty. It's meant to, to make us realize that, that there's one reason and one reason only why we are saved when so many are lost, and that is because God, for His own inscrutable purposes, chose to do it that way. But it doesn't take away the grief. Do you see it? It has its own weight and grief to it. And Paul's wrestling with it. Why is he so brokenhearted? Well, because these are his, these, this is his family. These are his kinsmen according to the flesh. 
but, but he's also grieved because of the unique tragedy of Israel's rejection of Jesus. You see, the Gentiles walked in darkness because they had never seen the light. They had no idea, never heard about Jesus, about, that knew nothing about the God of the Old Testament. The Jews walked in darkness because they had rejected the light. As Paul goes on to show, they had everything. They were God's covenant people. They saw God's glory. They were adopted as God's children. They received God's revelation in his law. They, they were welcomed into the worship of God. They, they heard God speak his promises, saving promises to them. They were spiritually privileged vastly above every other nation in the world. There's not a close second. And that's what makes the rejection of Christ so desperately tragic. Because despite all of their spiritual privileges, all of God's grace shown to them, all the works of salvation that he had revealed to them, they remained lost. Completely lost. Why? Well, you could say on the one hand, because their pride, their, their privileges became their pride. That's, that's one answer. They boasted about being Jewish, being Israelite, being God's people, and that was their pride, and that was their righteousness. They were confident that was enough. But that's not where Paul goes here. What Paul is wrestling with is, hey, did the word of God fail, and, and, and why is this happening? And he's asking that question with, with tears. So let's look at his argument. Verses 6 and following. Notice he starts with a, a refutation. It is not as though the word of God has failed. In the Greek language, if you want to emphasize a word, you take that word out of the sentence and you shift it to the very front, even if it makes no sense grammatically. And that's what Paul does here. He takes the word not, moves it right to the front of the sentence. He's, he's, he's using every tool he has in his bag to, to make clear God's word has not failed. And that's the thesis of chapters 9 through 11. That's what he's going to set out to prove. And to prove it, he's going to show how God's word is actually being manifested and revealed and fulfilled. He's going to do it over and over again in these three chapters. Half of Paul's references to the Old Testament in the book of Romans, 16 chapters, half of those references show up in these three chapters. He's just going to Scripture over and over and over and over. God's word has not failed. God has been faithful to his promises. God is true to his saving purposes, even when people reject him. And then he makes his argument, a correct understanding. The charge, you see, is that God has failed and thus has been in some way unfaithful, insufficient. And Paul's simple response to that is that God never promised to save every ethnic son of Abraham. Verse 6, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. You see, the, the Jews of Paul's day were absolutely convinced that their ethnic origin made them right with God. If you were born a child of Abraham, well, you were saved. That, that was... That was an absolute foundational given. No, nobody questioned that. So, and you see this show up in, 
in uh, both John and Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist would be talking about, you know, you brood of vipers, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. And they're like, what are you talking about? We're Abraham's children. And when Jesus talked to the Jewish religious leaders and rebuked them for their unbelief, they would say, you don't know what you're talking about. We're sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, well, if you were the sons of Abraham, you'd be doing what Abraham did, which is believing. But the fact is that you are sons of your father, the devil. But you see, that this was, this was their conviction, and, and, and Paul's response here just... Uh, in a devastating way, answers the challenge. Has God been unfaithful if, if, the, if the Jews are all rejecting Jesus? And, and Paul's answer is no, because not all Jews are rejecting Jesus. And that the, just because you're an ethnic Jew doesn't mean you're, you're a child of God, doesn't mean you're actually part of God's Israel. Ethnicity doesn't, doesn't make it work. And, and Paul makes that point by using two illustrations from their past. First, Abraham's children, and then Isaac's children. So Abraham has two sons, remember? Ishmael, the son that he had with Hagar, the Egyptian woman, Sarah's maidservant. It's Ishmael, the child of the flesh, the child that's born as all children are born by, by human desire, husband's will. And then you have the, the second child, Isaac, the miracle baby, in truth. Abraham's too old, and Sarah's been barren all her life, and they simply don't have the ability to conceive, and, and yet the child of promise is going to be the heir of God's blessings to Abraham. Ishmael should have been. He's the firstborn. By right, it belongs to him, but it doesn't work that way. God's saving purposes are carried out according to God's own plan. And so the child of promise, the child of divine choice, is the true Israel. And so Paul says, verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. So God has not been unfaithful. Every single true child of Abraham has always been and will always be rescued. Now, it would be understandable to, uh, if you just talk about Ishmael and Isaac, for an, an Israelite to respond and say, well, yeah, but it's very clear why Ishmael wasn't chosen. Ishmael was not the child of Abraham and Sarah. He's born of a, an Egyptian woman. The blood's not pure. But uh, Paul refutes that by showing that in Jacob and Esau, well, you have the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Verse 10, they have the same father. The, the Greek is a little more explicit. They're, they're conceived in the same act of fathering. Same dad, same mom, grow up in the same womb, same time. There's nothing to distinguish between the two boys in any way. There's nothing in the boys or about the boys that you could point to as a reason why God should choose one and not the other. And to press it all the way home, Paul says, verse 11, though they were not yet born had, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Notice all the weight, all the weight of divine election rests on God and God alone. In no way 
to the slightest possible degree does it depend upon those, uh, be, upon us. Now, there, again, there are, there are some people who try to play with this and say, well, God elects those whom He knew, He knows, because He knows all things. He looks into the future and He sees those who will exercise their free will and believe in Him. And so God elects those who choose to believe. Well, I mean, Paul just devastates that, that option in Romans 9. Before the twins were born, before the twins had done anything, good or evil, before they had done, not of works, not even the work of faith, but in order that God's purpose in election might stand, that's the driving principle, that's the, the determining principle. Rebecca's told that the older will serve the younger. Why? Well, because that's how God chose to do it. But that's, that's not an easy, just, you know, quick, pat response. Because there's, there's, there's devastating consequences from that. I mean, we read, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. That, that means that doesn't mean God had emotional responses to Jacob or Esau. What it means is that God set his favor upon the one, Jacob, the, this, this stealing, conniving, deceptive Jacob. He chose him, showed his favor to him, and Esau, God left to his sin, his unbelief, his judgment. And th that means that the descendants of Esau were left to their sin and their condemnation. That means they went to hell. Just, just feel the weight of that. And, and you ask the question, but why? why? Why Jacob and why not Esau? Why does Jacob get spiritual life? Why does Jacob get the blessing of God's favor and the blessing of God's presence and, and the promise of a, prom, of a future land and that's going to be fully fulfilled in a new heaven and a new earth. Why, do, why does Jacob and Jacob's descendants, why do they get that and Esau gets judgment? Why? And the answer just comes back, not because of anything in them, but in order that God's purpose and election might stand. And, you, and friends, I just think we are brought face to face then with a sovereign God. Because, because to our individual American sense of what's right and wrong, people are just going to say, that's not fair. But that's not just an American thought. It, people were saying that in Paul's day. That's not fair. So in verse 14, which Lord willing we'll get to next week, Paul goes immediately and answers that objection. And we just have to, to deal with God as he is and God as he actually reveals himself to be. Because that's what the text teaches. Now, stick with it if, 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 if that's really troubling you, and, and that's okay. It's troubled many, many people. That's okay. Let God rattle your cage a bit. But, but we're going to continue to go through, and we're going to see God continue to explain himself, not because he has to, but, but for our comfort and joy. But, but let me close by, by just a applying this truth. 
The primary point of the text is that God has not been unfaithful, that God's word has not failed, because God does not owe salvation to anyone. And he has chosen and he has saved all through history everyone he has chosen. That God's not been unfaithful. And that means that if you are a Christian, it's not because of anything in you. It is pure gift of divine, sovereign grace and choice. There wasn't anything in you. He chose you because he wanted to. And it is that want, the divine will and desire of God that is the reason you are a Christian and a child of God and an heir of heaven. And there's not another deeper reason. You see, this ought to just flatten all human pride. One of the most grotesque things that springs up in the life of the church, in the life of God's people, is a sense of pride that, of course, God chose us. Look at us. We're good people. Got nice clothes on. We go to church. Our kids are behaved, at least in church sometimes. But just look at us. We don't do what other people do. We believe better things. We act better in better ways. And you don't even have to... You don't even have to have that conversation in your mind. It's just an assumption that you can go with that as you look and you'll, you'll, you'll see it in the way that you despise lost people. It's sick. It's wicked. And this text is just meant to destroy all that. Paul is clearly seeking to destroy Jewish pride here, but it applies to all of us. We should be the most amazed, overwhelmed, gobsmacked people in the entire world. Why did God choose you? Why was I made to hear his voice and enter while there's room when thousands, when billions make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? And the reason they would rather starve than come is just because God has left them there. And I would have made exactly the same choice if God had left me there. If God left you there. So why? Why, why did God choose to make you his child? And this, the answer is just because he had mercy on you. And that should, that should devastate all pride and that should fill us with eternal gratitude. He chose to. He chose to. Election will change the way that we think. It'll change the way that we Pray for unsaved family and friends and neighbors. On the one hand, divine election will comfort us in in, in reminding us that we're not responsible for the salvation of our lost loved ones. Uh, We can't save them. Only only God can. But uh, he will save every single one that he's chosen. We, We have absolute confidence in that. And we know that God uses means. So we don't just throw up our hands and say, well, we don't have to worry about being light and, and, and salt and witnesses because uh, God, God is sovereign. God, you know, he can just save anyone. Well, of course he can, but God uses means. And, and the means that God has used throughout time, one of the primary means is the, the love and the prayers and the witness of believers. Believing family members, believing neighbors, believing co-workers. People who have a burden like Paul for the lost. 
You know, as I, as I read this, well, how come Paul was so, why didn't he just, um, why didn't Paul just say, you know what, the Jews, they've always been like that, they're always going to be like that, they get what they deserve. I'm done with them. He's a missionary to the Gentiles, but his heart is breaking for the Jews. Why? Because Paul realizes he's no different, no better. It's just the same. And God had mercy on him, and, and, and he, he's just so desperate for God to have mercy on, on his loved ones. And, and, and election will do this. That um, God has called me and you and us as his means to bear witness and to pray and to, and to care, to love people who are lost. And through that, God fulfills his elective purposes. It's a beautiful thing. Let me say this finally. Election is a God's prerogative and, and, and belongs to God's knowledge alone, right? The secret things belong to God, the revealed things to us and our children. God has not revealed whom he has elect and, and whom he has left to reprobation. I, I just heard recently of a, a young man, child of the church, who's wandered off into sin. And when an elder of the church appealed to him to repent, return, this, this man, young man said, well, I, I think I'm one of the reprobate. Maybe you've thought that. Please, please don't ever say that. You see, at best, it's a lie the devil is telling you. At worst, it's a lazy excuse to continue in your sin. And it assigns to yourself, arrogantly, knowledge you don't have. You have no idea what you're talking about. I'm sure that all the prostitutes in Palestine in Jesus' day thought they were reprobates too. Until they met the grace of God in Jesus Christ and, and saw love and mercy they had never imagined in someone who was able to forgive their sin and, and they were saved. And friends, so can you. And, and you will be saved if you will repent and believe. The, the, the doctrine of election is not, is not to bar anyone no one will, will come to the gates of heaven and say, Jesus, please save me. And Jesus says, wait, I don't think you're elect. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have absolute confidence you will be saved. I don't care how reprobate your life has been. Amen. You will be saved. The doctrine of election is not meant to undermine your hope. It's meant to be a foundation for it. Because if you have a desire to be saved, if you, if you, if you want to know Christ, if you, if you want to live a life that matters for Jesus, the reason you desire that is because the Holy Spirit has come to work in your life. And the reason the Spirit is there is because God has elected you. He wouldn't be there otherwise. And if you believe in truth, friends, well, God's election and calling are sure. If you believe in truth, well, God will be faithful to you. And you will not find a promise in the Bible that's worthy of doubt. Because every promise that God has given to you is yes and amen, amen. in Jesus Christ. Let's believe it. Let's be humbled by it. Let's be eternally thankful for it. Amen.
Oh, Father in heaven, we are just stunned by your word. We're overwhelmed by your sovereignty. We're ashamed of our pride. Why were we made to hear your voice? Lord, there are, there are thousands who make a wretched, wretched choice, and then there are tens of thousands more who've never heard the voice. And yet, you in grace and